It was new for us. Um, I, to be fair, hadn't monitored. I looked at what was above the soil and through fertilizer, um, unquestionably from what our fertilizer reps used to say, but when we, as Hamish said, bought this new farm, it was not responding, it's extremely good soil. We had a problem. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. All right, everybody, welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm joined this morning by the four McCurchers, the McCurcher family at Shrimpton's Hill over in Cannington near Cave. And I'm going to just hand it over to the family to introduce themselves individually. So who, who's up first? Um, hi, I'm Abby. I'm the newest McCurcher. Um, yeah, knee sure, sorry, but just recently married. Um, so I actually don't come from a farm. I'm a city girl. And the joke at our wedding eight weeks ago now was that um, Barbie's gone farming. So <laughs> it's pretty new to me, this whole farming situation and lifestyle but I'm loving it and I think it bring a bit of different perspective so that's me. Hi I'm John and um, I've been here all my life and um, I'm a director with Liz of Trimpton Soil Herefords Limited which runs the three farms we have totaling 1430 hectares and basically we run Hereford cattle with some trading seed. Hi, I'm Liz, and I've been married to John for 34 years and six-ish weeks. Um, We were lucky enough to share our wedding anniversary with Hamish and Abby on their wedding day, and um, it was very exciting to um, welcome Abby to our family, and uh, yeah, I've been fairly involved in the farm, both in the yards, most of my time here, but more so in the office these days. I'm Hamish, married to Abby. We've moved back to the farm and just before COVID, um, we were down in Queenstown and uh, yeah, we're the next generation. Next generation of McCurchers at Shripnins. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, guys. So I want to paint a picture, and I can't step over, how cool is it that you guys got the same wedding anniversary? There's no excuses now, Hamish, (laughs) for forgetting. Or John. <laughs> or John, yeah. I'm sure John, what is it, 36 years? You've had a few innings now. You, you should be pretty good on that on that front. You have to work in together. So, guys, tell us a bit of the history. I mean, for someone to say they've spent their whole life on a property, there must be a, a rich history there. Would someone like to speak us through um, what, you know, what sort of different phases the farm has been through and different variations? Well, basically, uh, John and my grandfather returned from the First War and he bought a neighbouring property in uh, 1920 and he bought the current property we're on in 1927 and um, farmed it till 1952 when he handed over to my mother and father and basically it ran a sheep flock with a small number of cattle. My father introduced a Hereford stud in 1968 and we always had a sheep stud that had been in the family since 1869. I bought a Leicester stud. So it's been here and, and is still here. Um, Liz and I took over in 1990. We were married in 1988 and took over in 1990. And um, we carried on what mum and dad had established. And we struck the 92 snow 
um, which was a, a massive change in thinking for us because we lost a few hundred sheep. We had uh, snow drifts up to uh, 11 feet and we chopped a lot of sheep out and a lot of them died um, for pneumonia and other reasons after we rescued them. But interestingly enough, we uh, had two cows abort out of about 200 cows and that was it, they survived. So it was a no-brainer for us to look at increasing cattle numbers and reducing sheep numbers and hence we scaled up our, um, our Hereford herd, we had a commercial herd and the stud herd and we gradually went all pedigree and um, we could see opportunities uh, going forward with the expansion of the dairy industry in the South Island so we uh, look at breeding specific genetics for that and it, and growing our business but the only way we could do that with selling bulls was obviously into the dairy industry because it was expanding and the beef industry wasn't. So hence we established a breeding program specifically for the dairy industry and out of that we've managed to expand and we've bought a couple of properties in um, 2014 and 2018, which have added balance and scale to our business. And they're not only balance and land type, but in rainfall and potential variegate and that sort of thing. So um, we've had numerous droughts, but we've managed to survive them. But the biggest impact, as I said, would be the 92 snow on our family who have been here almost a hundred years. That's incredible, John. Thank you for that, that rundown. And so the, the the genetic lines, both in the the cattle and the sheep, have really adapted to your environment. Well, they have to. We winter our, our cows, especially out on tussock country, and it ranges up to you know three and a half thousand feet, and they have to be able to survive and get back in calf and feed a good calf. So you're always mindful when you go down a left field breeding program like we, we did to keep an eye on your environment you're placing your animals in because as I said most of our bulls end up in the dairy industry they go to better land than we've got they're only there for one maximum two years and then they move on so it's important that we maintain structure and survivability and longevity in our female herd we, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've had tried bloodlines that we thought we'd, we'd go forward with, but have taken us back and that's breeding. You don't get it right all the time. Um, but we'd like to think on average, we go forward more than we go back. Um, we've had some, some good wins with selections of genetics and not so good. So, but that's farming and that's the challenge of it. And that's what gets you out of bed in the morning, really. The old saying, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah. For those listening, tell us about the ranges and, you know, topography, altitude. I mean, you've got quite a vast scale of environment. We have. We've um, probably got about 800 hectares of um, tussock country that is fairly much unimproved. A lot of native bush on it and still has a lot of native tussocks that we had when the family came here. We have got improved downland country, some of it steep, right through to heavy flats, uh, Wakanui and Templeton silt loams that um, have the potential to irrigate. We have a, a well and a consent, but not quite enough water at the moment. 
the potential is there to diversify out of cattle going forward into other uh, income streams, which is important, I think, because Hamish and Abby won't be doing what we're doing now at, at my age, and nor should they. That's life. You've got to be able to roll with the punches, really, and um, and I'm sure they'll see opportunities going forward that will change what we're doing now, and, and that's great. And I'd love to hear from Liz, like you know, being in the really heavily involved in the in that you know incredible roller coaster ride of from back then to taking over to you know now, and even thinking about you know the the, the increase in you know you would have been there in the when when AI really took over, um, and and like what's that effect been like on your business and the changes and and the focus of the business, Liz, from from that sense of of the business. Um, well, I grew up at Darfield on a mixed um, cropping farm and my parents had uh, stud border leisters also and would um, coopers and angora goats. So I was quite used to pedigree stock and in fact met John in the members bar at the Christchurch show back in the day. Um, both our families <laughs> were exhibiting border leisters and I think probably the Herefords, uh, McCurchers had Herefords there and I always might remember my mother complaining we all camped at the old showgrounds and the McCurchie boys used to get up at four in the morning to go and polish their cattle and they'd put their hobnail boots on and go past everyone's units and down the stairs and wake us all up. <laughs> so um, the McCurchies were well known. Um, yeah, as John just said, he was just getting home. <laughs> um, the, the stud stock side of it wasn't a, a, a surprise for me. Um, uh, the cattle side was a big change for me. Um, and it, I was quite timid in the yards for quite some time. But, yeah, it's, I think if you've got a bit of stock sense and you can read stock, then it doesn't matter what type of stock it is, really. You, you, you know when to move and when not to move or where to move. Yeah, so we probably, we had bull sales thinking that we were going to sell to the beef industry um, for a number of years, really, when we were in combined sales. And um, we could see that we, we because of our um, topography, we carved a lot later and we were competing with probably Hereford breeders that were carving on irrigated land and bringing out bulls a whole lot younger and a whole lot fatter than ours. And we were always sort of coming, well, we, we had to try a whole lot harder to get our bulls up to speed. So it wasn't, um, like John said, it wasn't difficult for us to actually forget about the um, trying to sell to the beef industry. Uh, we could see that that was a diminishing market as the beef cow herd was diminishing, as the um, dairy cow herd was increasing in Canterbury. So we were, we could see that that was really a no-brainer. Um, and really, we still want grossly well-muscled Herefords. Um, we have certainly had to focus more on low birth weight calving ease. And we've specialised in gestation length because we um, soon realised that you know, more, more days in milk is more money for the dairy farmers. So that's where we've gone. Um, we, we've done a lot of ai over the years. We've imported semen from North America, Canada and the US and also Australia. Um, there's a whole lot of restrictions on countries around the world where we can import semen. And uh, in fairness, a lot of them uh, show animal type Herefords. Um, and as you know, Jono, um, it's more about what you can't see than what you can see in a lot of cases. And um, yeah, we were more concerned about the, what we couldn't see in an animal's breeding than what we could see. Over the years, we've embryo transplanted and we still do a lot of that. We're actually 
setting up an AI program early next week for to do heifers for automating. So just roll with it, really. We seem to be doing it all year round. We're either calving or mating one mob or another, <clears throat> or yeah, weaning something and then bringing bulls up for sale. So it's busy. I want to, I want to come to you, Hamish, because you were involved with you're a helicopter pilot. Yeah, I've spent seven years in Australia mustering cattle, You're working for the government, doing a bit of culling. Decided I'd come back home. Um, while mum and dad bought this other farm, you know, pretty busy, obviously, a bit stretched. I thought, right, I'd better, <laughs> I'd better come home. And um, I did another two years in Queenstown flying. And just before COVID, we moved back. We resigned before COVID and then COVID happened. And then we came back to the farm. Yeah, pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good timing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's a complex system, you know, with, with a lot of variables Hamish and Abby, have you, have you been able to just jump straight in and sort of gel with the goings on of the farm or talk us through coming home? I would spend the summers back here, um, well, the wet season in Australia, I'd come back here and work on the farm and do the bull sale as well. And like I, I knew, you know, I've known, understand our breeding program and stuff, but um, it's just probably getting more, you know, genetically getting your head around you know, the bulls that we're using and, and, and um, our, in our programs and stuff like that. But yeah, I think it's sort of been not too bad, has it? It's yeah. worked in pretty well, yeah. I mean, I suppose we've been quite lucky because, yeah, well, any time that we'd come home from Queenstown, Liz and John have always been really open and sharing information about the farm and um, kind of always had that mutual conversation, particularly for me, because like I said, I'm not, I'm from a city and, um, Funny story, actually, the first time I came to the farm, we were sitting around and um, Liz and John Hayne were talking about shifting the brakes in the morning. And I thought, I was sitting there like nodding my head like, yeah, I know what that is. Had to Google on my phone, like, what is shifting the brakes? <laughs> but in, in, I particularly have never felt embarrassed asking questions about the farm. And I think Liz and John, and huge credit to them, they've always been so good at sharing and yeah making us feel like we're equally involved and not um yeah never hiding any information i think that's the beauty of it really um first lockdown was kind of a blessing as well it's just the four of us we had to get on and we could get stuck in yeah and um yeah and i think this is probably the strength of us is um we're pretty open about what we're doing and always talking and um yeah everyone's has a say and yeah yeah, really, really powerful and really important when you come into these, you know, succession situations, knowing that you're being heard and that what you've got to say is is valid. Let's let's talk about what do you think is really important when you're starting the conversation, not necessarily, you know, taking action on or maybe it's not happening in the next year or two or what's really important in these conversations as you start talking about what succession looks like because, you know, you've got John who's been here his whole life and you know there's a lot this farm means a great deal to you John and I know I know and what I can hear is there's a lot of trust um what what else is really important when you're having the discussion you talk about openness what else is really important well I think it's important well openness is the key but uh, to be all on the same page and um we we have a daughter who's working in London at the moment we've started a session we've had a meeting and um it, it was very opening because everybody stated what they wanted, what they, their expectations are with succession. 
we have multiple options, but the important thing is that it's fair, which might not necessarily be equal. And um, I remember when Liz and I took over a couple of years after um, mum and dad allocated assets to our family members, we took over this property and um, they just said, there you are, go for it. And I can't wait for that. And, um, and Hamish and Abby, if they're anything like Liz and myself, will make mistakes, but they'll learn from them and they'll make a lot of good decisions. And um, I'm confident of that. So it's a matter of, um, it's, it's not going to be a quick process because that's the nature of the business we're in. It's, um, as you know, farming, sheep and beef farming is small cash flow relative to the scale of your assets. So divide the assets up and have everybody doing all right or comfortable. It's not easy, but um, we've got plans in place and I'm pretty sure we can get the job done and, and everybody still be friends. And that's the important thing for me. That's vital. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the friendship. Brilliant. All right. I want to hear what are some of the hurdles that you've noticed in farming in general and specific to your operation? Well, you've always got hurdles for climate and that's the first one. And, um, you've got to roll with that and you've got to plan for that and you've got to make early decisions when you get dry times or floods or, or snows. Snows are probably the worst because it's instant and your whole farm's covered and you have to feed everything and and that's fine. Um, touch wood, we haven't had one for a while, but um, we know we'll get more. Obviously, there are um, outside hurdles with compliance and, and government regulation and um, issues like that, which... You just have to deal with, you can't alter that to a certain extent. You've just got to farm smarter and um, look at what you think is going to come and maybe plan for that. So when it does come, it's not such a big shock. You've got to have a flexible farming program that you can um, suddenly destock or restock or, um, and one of the big you know, constraints that we've had is mycoplasma because um, we can't introduce any new cattle to our system. We, we obviously buy semen and that, most of that is from Australia, um, but we're a closed herd. So um, to take care of surpluses, we have to buy sheep and um, we're lucky that our cattle are all re uh, registered. So they're um, all performance recorded. So if we come into a big dry period, we know which are our worst performers and genetically which are our worst cattle and we can get rid of them to get through feed shortages and that sort of thing. But the other side of that is we don't like doing that so much because we just can't restock. And because we've got a unique genetics here, we just can't go and buy them anyway. So, um, you know, most of our herd is in the top 1% of the breed in Australasia for short gestation. So not many other herds have got many in the top 1% at all. But as Liz said earlier, that's so cru crucial for us because that. That's a cornerstone of our breeding program because obviously it's more days of milk, which is more money for our clients. And coupled with that, um, we we do have a, a semen contract with LIC, so it's important that we keep our genetics to the fore to honour that agreement. You mentioned you've got to be adaptable. What do you do with supplement? Is a supplement a big part of preparation for handling surplus and being prepared for? for instance, snow events? We do make a lot of supplements and, and we know in, a, um, in previous snows, uh, we need 
a certain amount of bailance slash silage slash hay to get through, depending on, but then every snow is different, so some you don't need so much. But we do try and take through more than one year's worth, so if we get an adverse event, we can take care of that. What does soil health mean for you guys? We bought this farm and it sort of hadn't been looked after that well. Just then it needed a bit of a freshen up and yeah, we just saw an opportunity to try something new. We had employed you and a few other people and we found that we had no life in the soil and um, things weren't growing and we're getting advice from fit reps and stuff and yeah, things still weren't growing. And I think it's really opened our eyes getting into the soil and what's been going on. My background's in nutrition and um, it's always kind of fascinated me how much these days we're kind of losing nutrients from our foods and obviously that plays a massive role um, with the quality of soil. So yeah, um, turning over soil quickly and you know stripping that nutrient layer and not having that diversity in soil. So um, yeah, and, and also on that too, and Hayne probably wouldn't admit it, but when we came to the farm, you know, Hayne's got friends that you know went to Lincoln and went to, you know had a background and kind of felt like oh well, they they should have all the knowledge and what who am I to say like we need to improve the soil? So Hayne's definitely got a bit more confident in that and, and really yeah throwing out some ideas from a different perspective. So I think that also helps. Um, not just saying oh you know a textbook said this so we have to do that. John always made the comment of, you know, when you came to help and, you know, a few months on, how much, how many more worms were in the soil? And, you know, it doesn't take a scientist or a textbook to say, you know, you have to do this. Um, it's just looking and feeling. Was that a, a new, con- like, have you always been looking at the soil, simple things like worm numbers? Was that new for you, John, or was that something you've always sort of monitored? It was new for us. Um, I, to be fair, hadn't monitored it. I, I looked at what was above the soil and through fertiliser, um, unquestionably from what our fertiliser reps used to say, but when we, as Hamish said, bought this new farm that was not responding, it's extremely good soil, we had a problem. So it just happened to coincide with our accountant giving us uh, Gay Brown's book, and I don't read books, but I actually read that one, and. Um, couldn't put it down and I really from my farming background could understand exactly where it's coming from so hence we um, went down this new path for me and um, we've learned a lot and in a short time we've been doing it we've improved our soil significantly our diversity of species and our livestock health has really improved and um, we're getting value out of that farm we purchased that's um, and we've just cut reliance on urea which we were buying a lot of and um, throwing it at and trying to get responses and wasn't really working that well for us so we decided um, to go down this line of regenerative culture. I really like the, um, the diversity of species because I think that's important I mean I don't like eating one thing all the time and yet we are to ask our livestock to do that. So with multi-species and that sort of thing, we are producing a better balanced diet for our livestock. And, you know, it all adds to increasing the soil and, and that flows on to our animals. Like we, we did an embryo transplant program 
we did everything that what we normally do, but we background these recipients on a regenerative paddock. Uh, and I'm not it's certainly not scientific, but our conception rate went from 25 to 70%, from changing from conventional pastures to having mm -hmm. our recips on a regenerative pasture. Multi-species. And without supplements, that's what we did. And um, the same sort of technicians, same same everything, um, very fertile research, rising in plant and nutrition. And when you're doing ET work, it's extremely expensive. So you've got to you rely heavily on good conception rates. And um, so we're thrilled with that. And um, that in itself is driving us to keep going. And well, along with a lot of other things, especially as Abby said, the worm numbers and the improvement life. in soil life mm -hmm. and soil health. Yeah. yeah, soil life. Like I would assert that that would not be a comment that would have been thrown around a lot, Liz and John, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Soil life, you're thinking. <laughs> when John said about how you know, we don't like to eat one thing. Like from a, a nutritionist's perspective, like you'd never recommend anyone else to eat one thing. Like was that something for you that was just like, yeah, duh, like you, you want to eat different stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a, yeah, it's a no-brainer. We can't, um, you know, live off lettuce our whole life. We've got to have a mixture of everything. And um, I suppose to it's um, like we think – I look at like supplements for cattle, but supplements for humans. Yeah, they're good, but they're only the icing on the cake. You have to have that good, you know, baseline diet. And that's the same with cattle too. You can't, yeah, it's fine having supplements and giving them this and that, but they've got to have a good baseline and a good, um, yeah, overall health first. Was it news to you that it mattered how certain foods were growing like as in sure a lettuce is a lettuce but actually how a lettuce is growing makes a huge difference yeah absolutely it um yeah like i'd said before it's you know we have food now that the quality oh, and you mentioned just before too the quality's decreased but it looks good you know it's all and it's it's the we're turning over our food quicker but what um impact is that had on our soil and it all yeah it all kind of you know interlinks right and um, yeah, I always find it quite fascinating, like you said, having a look at um, what our grandparents ate and how, you know, they had good veggie gardens and they're getting the nutrients in. And yeah, we're buying big tomatoes from the supermarket, but they probably have a third of the good nutrients that we used to have. So no. But then, yeah, and thinking for cattle to, you know, make it happen a bit quicker, their food, but what detriment is that doing to them eating less nutrients? And, like John said, impacting potentially their fertility and their health. Have you noticed anything around the costs of health when you start looking at nutrition of the animals on the farm? Like, has there been a change in the way you approach animal health with a different perspective on nutrition? A small change because out of our 1,400 odd hectares, there's only a small proportion, a couple of hundred hectares are in regenerative. So whilst our herd is mainly grazing native country and improved country. There's not, it's not all on regenerative, but certainly we find that when you're feeding a multi-species crop and we've got winter feed crops and that are multi-species, you don't need to use the supplements. And, and one of the things that really 
we what we used to do we've gone away from is growing fodder beet yeah fodder beet people swear by because you get so, such high tonnages of dry matter per hectare but that's fine you, it's full of sugars and you have to counterbalance it with protein to get your stock to grow so it's expensive when you add that in and then, then there's so much soil damage done because your stock are on a paddock for a long period of time before they finish it so because of the tonnages you're growing our idea is to grow less tonnages in greater areas and have the stock on it for shorter periods and don't feed them supplements so whilst our area of winter feed has expanded you know we've got we've got greater drilling costs and seed costs and that because of the greater areas we're growing but certainly our fertilizer costs have gone through the floor so it's it swings and roundabouts but in the same time we are improving pastures of this especially this new block we bought because we're getting around it quicker with um, drilling greater areas and getting away from fodder beets and, and, and getting rid of a lot of poor pastures quicker. Is there any changes of management on the hill, like this this thought process around, I mean, was it always a pretty low input environment or was there changes had on the hill as well when you started to change things down on, on the lowlands? It's always been a low input. We used to put a lot of fertiliser out there when we had breeding ewes, lambing out there and things like that. But now uh, most of our hill country, because of expanded an area, is used for wintering cows. More than half of our tussock country is shut up from August through to now. And it's in standing hay, basically native. All the cows go out now from now on and they come in in August. So um, it's extremely, it's no input country. We'll take salt blocks out there basically to move them around the block to keep them up or bring them down um, and supplement a bit. But it's it's a good good system for us because the cows are pregnant, they are in good order, they just need to coast them through to calving. And the, the good thing about working them around our hill country is they get extremely fit. So when it comes to calving, the calves aren't big, the cows are fit touch wood tends to work very easily. So, and if the numbers are running, that's good because we don't have to spend a lot of time calving cows. And um, but, so our focus is more on our best land because that's where we see we've got our greatest return and we're not needing high quality bulk feed on our whole country to get cows and calf. We use our, our lower country to do that. And, and I would also assert that up on the hill there, like if you really got up there and had a look around, you know, all these practices that we bring to the table now about regenerative ag, like some of you mentioned, you know, diversity, um, you know, not interfering too much with plants and their nutrient cycles. That's all happening up there. Just looks different. That's right. It's, it's happening naturally. And I guarantee you there'd be more than 20-odd species up there if you got down on your hands and knees and did some crawling mm. over the over the hill. You've got to get your head around the fact that uh, let it go to seed and you don't have to graze it and keep it, uh, you know, under 3,000 kilos of dry matter of hectare. I mean, just let it go. And then I always uh, equate to some of our wintering practices as a bit like a drought. You, you drive around the countryside and you see a lot of farmers grazing the roadside. Now, there's a, a huge diversity of species here. There's no fertiliser going on, but the stocks seem to do all right on it. It's no different than what we're doing on our hill country. I want to know what's it like putting the animals, chucking the girls out in these diverse pastures, do they behave differently? For us, you know, when the cows are on the mouldy species, it, it seems to, it doesn't go straight through them like it, you know, we, when we put them on straight clover in a grass mixture, 
you know, they're absorbing a lot more of it instead of just going straight through them. We think they're happy as on it. It just, you know, it, it took them a while to get used to what a sunflower was. Well, you know, only one more break and then they're just smashing them. And you know, we've had the sheep on there as well. Had a um, multi-species crop there that um, the sheep were on. And funny, they'll just walk around the paddock and then slowly have a nibble here, have a nibble there, and then they'll come back and have a nibble at something else. And yeah, just the interactions was, yeah, it's pretty awesome actually. Yeah. And I suppose like comparing it to us, you imagine if we just like pumped ourselves with sugar, how it just again goes straight through us and we go, we spike in energy and then they're on a big lull. They definitely, yeah, like the cows if they're, um, and the bulls, if they're eating nutrient-dense foods, they're probably a bit more mellow. And We found that you know, now we've planted a lot of veg and a lot of our mixtures and they just absolutely go nuts with veg. Like they heads down and, and it's somehow popped up in paddocks till we haven't drilled or anything like that. It's almost like a weed, but um, yeah, they just absolutely love it. It's pretty cool. But just, yeah. There is a bit of selective grazing when you first put them on there because with our mouldy species mixtures, we've got up to 26 species in some paddocks. Well, there's different flowering dates, so there's different maturity dates. So while some are in the sea head that they might bypass till they have to eat it, they um, tend to select the you know, succulent um, plants that haven't gone to flowering. So, um, but one, once they get used to, as Hamish said, sunflowers were a classic. Once they got used to them, they'd, they'd pick them out. And, um, but it's, it's just that combination of varieties that um, we think is, is good for our stock. And, and they seem happy, as Abby said, they seem very happy grazing it. So, yeah. I really can get that you guys are not operating in a system where it's close the gate, come back in however many days and move them on. It's like you're actually observing. And moving a lot more too. Um, we, we would have once just put them in a paddock and come back in a week's time type of thing, but now we don't. I mean, some some crops we're shifting twice a day and, and this sort of thing, depending on the mob size in the area and that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's a bit more labour intensive, but then when you're doing that, you're, you're observing them and and um, you're keeping a closer eye on them and coming back in a week. So you've tried some doing the plant diversity thing on the flats and you're using your observational skills and assessing soil health and improvements in soil health. You're playing with your grazing, so less exposure to certain areas, more recovery. What are some other things that are piquing your curiosity or perhaps that you're, you're dipping your toe in or what... It, and or maybe that you want to and haven't started yet something you're learning not being afraid of branching out and we're pretty open-minded really and we're, we're starting a new breeding program within the herd concentrating on imf into muscular fat is that something you can measure now yeah you can you can for it when i think of intramuscular fat i think like a wagyu yeah, yeah. tell me about the hereford breed it's certainly something that we can breed for and and you know, give them a good run for their money. The Angus breed is really doing it. We see a real opportunity there because Wagyu's take a long time to get up to weight and to mature. The Hereford and British breeds can sort of um, get there a little quicker. I think it's important too, Jono, that, um, that we concentrate on carcass data 
going forward with our exposure to LIC because we're um, the biggest private supplier of beef genetics in the New Zealand meat industry through our semen sales of LIC. You know, we're only 50% of the genetics obviously coming out of that industry and the dairy cows are the other 50% and they've never been selected for carcass and, and it's always been other traits. There's lots of unknowns in the future going forward um, with hobby calves and euthanizing them on farm. So if they're going to have to keep them, they might as well have a decent carcass there. And that's where Wagyu are great. You know, they are a great marbling. But as any geneticist will tell you, that there's a greater variation within a breed than between breeds. So we're looking at, righto, why don't we just source the very best IMF and single trait select and see how we go. Um, so you're ticking the short gestation box, and now you're looking at introducing a new market opportunity to Bobby get it gone. You're, you're bringing perhaps a beef element to a dairy business. Well, I think it's important that if Bobby calves are being banned, that we've got a product that the market really wants, and we're just we've identified that, and especially Hamish and Abby have with setting up this program that going forward. Um, are we going to be able to sell so much semen if we haven't got that in our genetics? So um, it's important that we are competitive um, because the Hereford is the most preferred breed at the moment going into the dairy industry. But, you know, there's a lot of dairy farmers using Wagyu's and not too worried about the white face instant market that a Hereford provides because of those carcass genetics that Wagyu's bring to the table. So uh, that's our biggest competitor. So why not, hang on a minute, why don't we have a crack? And that's what we're doing. We're scanning all our replacement females and we're sourcing genetics that are both short and gestational but high in IMF. And one of the issues with our breeding program with our short gestation is obviously sourcing new genetics because we're at the pinnacle in Australasia to get new genetics to keep genetic diversity within our herd, especially for our cows wintering on, on hill country, we don't want too much inbreeding. We have to pull back a bit, and that's where it allows us to go sideways into IMF or, or whatever else. And it's, it's a new, exciting challenge for Hamish and Abby, and, and we just watch the space, you know. <laughs> that's incredible. Do you guys see any changes in the way you market based on the way you market your products, you know, beyond genetics? And is, is there changes in marketing around practices? Do you believe that there's uh, opportunities for people like you guys who are really looking at soil health, ecological health, nutrition? Do you guys think we're there yet? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the consumer is going to force that on us. And it's beginning now. Well, it's been going for a bit, but it's going to get more and more traction because people want to know where their food's coming from and, and that gets back to what Abby was saying about nutrition and the nutritional value of our food and, and people are very conscious of animal welfare and, and farm practices so but the bulk of our cattle end up into the food chain via some other person because we're selling bulls to a farmer He's grazing them, he's using them, and then he puts them into the food chain. And it's the same as our semen goes into the dairy industry. So whilst we can have good farm practices here, there's an intermediary before they end up on someone's table. So, But that doesn't preclude us from being animal welfare compliant and, and using less drugs for, in our cattle and, and trying to have the genetics and the background of feeding and nutrition that is important for someone else to pick up. And I can see huge, huge pluses for people who adopt those sorts of measures in their commercial growing out of whatever product. Um, the consumer will demand it or are demanding it and it's only going to get more important.
has it been difficult for you guys sharing and talking about what you are doing with other people in the industry? Oh, well, it's taken, yeah, it's taken a few people have shook their heads at us and gone, what the hell's going on? But um, yeah, we, we believe in what we're doing and, and we're seeing results and it's working for us. So yeah, people are starting to understand and, and we're trying to build resilience in a drier year. It's just a different way of approaching it that it's, you know, it's like leaving more on the break than, you know, when we're shifting and having a back break and stuff like that. And we can get back onto the paddocks quicker. And yeah, we're really seeing the change that way, mm-hmm. aren't we? Has it been so obvious this year, John, because it's been a ripper of a season, but um, certainly in a dry year, it's pretty obvious where our farm starts and the neighbours. We, we, we finish and they start basically um, because our pastures have really, we've seen great improvement in how they've hung on and we've probably got caught um, in the dry last summer and having to graze a bit lower than we'd have liked to, but gosh, our pastures recovered a heck of a lot faster than those around us. So we've got quite a few people watching our space. <laughs> and as John said, he's always not, not afraid to um, have it on the main roads so everyone can see. And I think they're probably expecting a couple of hippies and grey beds um, farming there. But um, yeah, so we, no, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's been pretty special having Hamish and Abby um, so passionate about it too that we've all just really hooked into it and seeing such benefits and yeah throwing all sorts of ideas at each other and just just learning really and, and other people's perspectives it's been very valuable having Hamish and Abby with us to encourage us and keep each other on board and see this forward direction we're going and yeah very lucky to have have them home and interested in what we're doing it's, a lot of years we thought um, we might have to buy a house in northern Australia if we were going to see Hamish. <laughs> Since it was about three, all he wanted to do was fly helicopters. So um, five years ago, we hadn't anticipated that we'd have Hamish home, let alone with gorgeous Abby. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting for us. And you, you've created it. That's how. Well, yes. <laughs> I think possibly John and I were thinking, what are we, where are we going to be in five years? Will we need a manager? Will we, you know, we're going to have to get extras in. And um, it was a very exciting day when Hamish and Abby said, we think we'd like to come home. And so we sort of said, oh, what do you mean to live? We said, no, 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 it's a farm. So we said, really? Like, oh, that was so exciting. And it's um, it's been absolutely stimulating for us to um, have family back on the farm and continuing on the, the story. Because it's something we step over this all the time, like, and people don't often ask the question. But a lot of people step into an intergenerational farm because it's like, oh, that's just what you do. But to hear your son come to you and say, "I want to come home," like that is huge. It's thrilling. Wow, I can just yeah, I can just hear that. It's incredible. I'd like to I'd like to wrap up now, guys, um, with a question that I ask everyone right at the end of the podcast, and I, and I want to ask all of you individually, what would you say to someone who's just starting their journey? Maybe they've listened to this podcast and they're like, oh, how do I, you know, what now? What would you say to that person at that stage? Um, I would say be open to to learning. Don't just learn from a textbook and, you know, really look at cattle, look at the soil and be, be present. You know, you don't have to have a background and um, farm management or or no cattle inside and out just it's at the end of the day it's a bit of common sense and it's um, what's happening in my environment well I would say don't be afraid to have a go do what you like whatever it is in farming do what you like because you'll make a better job of it than doing something you don't like and I think that's very important and, and we happen to I, I especially like working with cattle and probably 92 snow was a trigger but um, 
it worked well for us for my my aspirations of farming and um, so yeah do what you like and never be afraid to change and I always say too um, go and ask the most successful farmers in the district too and why they are successful we've noticed what we've been doing it worries me a bit when a successful farmer questions what we're doing but when a, a farmer I counter as being dyed in the wool and doesn't do anything different ask me I think well I might be on the right track here so um Without being arrogant, I think that's um, a reflection of we've struck that round here, really, in our district. And as you said earlier, there's not a lot of it happening here, but certainly some very successful farmers that are complementary and question us and want to learn from us, and that's important. I think it's quite important to probably benchmark and, and just have a go, maybe do one paddock and benchmark it um, against another paddock right next door and just see whether it's counting worms, whether it's pasture growth, benchmark where you started. I think that's quite an important thing to do. And for me, I've probably had to adjust to not worrying about thistles and sort of scruffy looking paddocks. That's taken a bit for me to get used to. <laughs> Growing up at Darfield, everything was pretty immaculate. <laughs> so that's, that's what I found um, a bit of a struggle, but um, yeah. But as I said before, it's about um, what you can't see. I think being open-minded is, is the biggest thing, really. We've made a lot of changes within what we're doing already, and we've had a few failures here and there, and we we make it a, a, adapt it to suit us as well. You can't just go full hog and get right into it. You just sort of have to gradually bring it in. I just want to acknowledge you for your generosity and your sharing of your journey. It's all been incredibly, incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for your generosity this morning. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.